Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Here at Evolution Recruitment NHS, we're committed to helping NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to build trust and develop deep relationships with individuals to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing ideas and insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I'm Katia and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. Thank you for joining me today to discuss how to improve data quality within clinical systems. So I think it would be good to start with some introductions. Um, Peter, you are first on my screen. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I'm Peter Newton. I'm Associate Director for Information and Data Warehousing Um, within Midlands Partnership University Foundation Trust. Um, I've been with the Trust two years and I've taken them on a journey from using Excel to Power BI and we're looking hopefully to move forward into Azure data warehousing in the future. Thank you. Andrew, are you okay to go next? Yeah, hi, I'm Andy Kelly. I'm a consultant anaesthetist and one of the deputy CCIOs at University Hospital of Coventry in Warwickshire and NHS Trust. Uh, I've been a consultant for 12 years now um, and been involved with this sort of digital programme for about eight of those. Uh, we're in the middle of a um, an EPR implementation. We're currently uh, six months away from going live with Oracle CERN and Millennium um in october of this year amazing thank you matthew i'm uh, matthew rooney that's matthew rooney i'm also a consultant anaesthetist i've been a consultant 27 years now but um, anyway i've been involved on the digital side for the last um eight or or nine years um this was at heart of england foundation trust as uh, became the uh, chief clinical information officer there and then on merging with uh, university hospitals birmingham um i was the i've been the uh, deputy chief clinical information officer oh, i'm a uh, clinical lead for the epr and um all of the areas been involved with, including the uh, particular involvement with the shared care record, working with GPs, uh, and we're also looking at some of the other, um, uh, you know, some of the uh, governance issues, and um, uh, also um, developing our own EPR as as uh, environmental as the environment changes. Thanks. Perfect. Brilliant. So we should probably just get straight into it. Um, Andy, are you okay to start us off with your question? You happy to go first? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so my question is, what does good quality data look like and who is responsible for good quality data? Brilliant. Peter, what's your perspective? Everyone with who is touching the data is responsible for it. And it goes down to the, from the clinicians through to the IT or some some in some departments don't own the data, but I think certainly it's it starts at the administrators and the clinicians and potentially also the patients. The patients are the ones that answer the questions that we ask them. So they in fact are responsible for providing feedback to us that allows that analysis to take place. And I'm not talking about the clinical conditions, but I'm talking about their address, their home address, the ethnicity, their working situation, etc. That's important for them. That would be my first start. 
Matthew? Yeah, well, I'm sorry. What, what does good quality data look like? I mean, if, I just, if we just look at that particular question there, it can be really hard to, um, uh, to, to sort of actually measure it sometimes, but you've really got to analyse it because so many things rely on really good quality data. And we have to look at the, uh, you know, on where it has come from, what sort of data we are expecting, that the sort of variances in there are the looking for the errors and the other things, what what checks go into it to produce that data. Um, in terms of the responsibility, yes, I mean, the responsibility goes right from down from the bottom up to the top, you know, making sure that the people who put the data in actually have the right information to work on, that they are putting in the correct and relevant data, which is in there, um, right up to those who are supervising them, those who analyze them and all the various things. But actually, I think it's, it, it, it's often only when you really look at the data and you analyze it that you can actually start to assess how good that how good the data is um, if we look at it superficially we can be very easily misled brilliant thank you matthew um andy i think it'd be good to get an answer to your own question really what are your thoughts yeah i mean i think it's really easy to say what is bad data i think it's much easier to identify something as being as being wrong it's almost like sort of trying to prove a negative it's very easy to say well that, that's just bad data you know that's um, you know that, that the height of weight is wrong, the address is wrong. That, that you know, what what is actually good data? I mean, you, you can you can try and define it. You can say, well, it's it's accurate, it's up to date, and it's 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 relevant. But I think something we're finding increasingly is is that data actually usable? And there's such a difference between between actionable data that is that is good that we can use that is properly coded that you can refer to something else and something that is just you know, may have been the correct information and um, uh, an accurate information so a diagnosis of hypertension that is scribbled on a piece of paper that is hidden in the back of notes is utterly unusable is not something that can be referenced it's not something that can be searched and is is really of no value so even though it's accurate even though it's correct and up to date it's not good quality data and that's that's where it becomes i think really difficult to to, to pin down what our um what our kind of criteria for, for something being good uh, and i completely agree with, with everyone it, it is everyone's responsibility um I, i'm a left-handed male doctor there's nobody with worse handwriting than me so i'm well aware when i write something even if i'm writing something that's 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 accurate if it's no, if it can't be read by anyone else, it's 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 pointless. So it's it's my responsibility to make my writing as as clear as possible, or um, or to reference that when I'm uh, when I'm entering data into into systems. Keith, I'll come to you first. You've got your hand up. Do you want to add something? Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I I actually before you said anything, Andy, I was going to follow up with the word usable. But then I start usable and good of almost their own. They have their own broadness. I think it, you could have very loose, very weak data, and it could be incredibly usable if you were doing it for public health analysis in certain areas, because my public health team would probably come after me if I said that. On the other hand, if you want to do AI on SNOMED codes for solutions to conditions, and tracking pharmaceutical project 
products, the data has to be exact, precise. So there's so it is really what we want is data to be accurate and put in the right place for it to be usable. But we can use data even if it's poor entry. There's an interest. There's interesting dynamics to that whole discussion, and I think my view is as as we demand more from reporting or intelligence or informatics. If we, once we get to the point where trusts are running their own AI on their clinical systems to see what drugs have the best outcome, what um, mental health, um, um, like uh, if you. So ICD-10 art therapy is only coded as therapy. Uh, sorry, art therapy. But within SNOMED, you can break that down to creative, to painting, to music. Which one of those, at certain age groups, genders and locations, has the better outcome? That's the power. But to have that, it's, the, the data just can't be good. It's got to be detailed, accurate and spot on for what that patient is receiving. Andrew, I might come back to you first, just because I think it might be in relation to what Peter's just said. And then Matthew's got his hand up as well. It was, and then I think Peter summarised it in the way I was about to, 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 to try and sort of say something. I think you're absolutely right. It, it needs to be it, it needs to be for the purpose defined. And that's where, you know, we can we can cross-reference data and we can cross-use stuff. But there are, there are times when it absolutely has to be um, specific to the purpose and specific to the um, to the requested need. Um, Matthew, come to you now. Yeah, I was also going to add in is that yes, you can have the right data recorded, but you've got to sort of collect the right bits and the most important bits of it. So, say for an example, you've got somebody who's recorded as having an operation. Let's say he's having his lung removed. He's having a thoracotomy, but they do a bronchoscopy first. They have a look into his lungs first, so they record in their theatre system. He's had a a, a telescope into his lungs first and then he has a further procedure to have a look at this uh, to actually take out his chunk of lung now one of the problems is is that some systems might only look at the first code and they think oh that was only a minor operation there uh only had a bronchoscopy and, and oh it looked it took three or four hours why did it take that long and you can imagine some of the sometimes uh, Taking data without in, with it, without the full picture or or putting the data into the importance of uh, the context of it can also create real um, errors or misunderstandings as well as to what the data means. And this is something I've found when certainly when analysing theatre data is actually how they actually code it. What what are the codes which are actually taken, which are looked at, and then not always have the most important one at the top. The most important thing might be further down. Which name have they got in there? Actually, as they as that as um you know John Smith is that is that the John Smith anesthetist or the John Smith surgeon or or whatever? These sort of errors can easily crop in where it looks like it's the right one, but actually it's got somebody. It's got a basic um uh nominal error uh, which has been put into that so there's all these sort of other potential things which come into the uh, into the data which we have to be have, have measures in to try and uh, minimize context is a great word Matthew I think that's what we were trying to say as well it's con context usable <laughs> clear yeah brilliant I think where we're, we're beginning to struggle is is actually using data for the purpose it wasn't maybe originally designed 
and we've got you know we we've got a, a theatre database with a collection of procedures that we've been reporting on and, and saying this is what we've been doing. We're now using that to build a different theatre catalogue. So we're building based on what we have been doing for the last few years. And that actually, a lot of it isn't actually relevant. A lot of it isn't actually correct data, but we're building procedures based on incorrect data because we're using something that really is not is not being used for the purpose in which it was designed. And that data, which was originally not requested, is being used for purpose that it probably shouldn't be. That's the culture that we've been in, isn't it? Is that we've been asked to record and record up to the NHS England on our performance. And in doing so, we've sort of missed the trick of recording data for ourselves and our own future use. Because I guess at the point we started this, we never thought AI would be available on our doorstep. Matthew, you got your hand up there. Yeah, and no, I think there is also aspects in terms of planning. And this is a great one, a great source of pain for many anaesthetists. How long does an operation take? You think it's sort of easy. Yeah, from a surgeon's point of view, it's from when he sticks his knife into when he's he does his last stitch from an anaesthetist point of view. It's actually from when we, we, you know, patient arrives in the anaesthetic room to when we get them out into recovery. Now, if you if you have uh, your list to generation, for instance, based on, um, you know, the surgeon saying, oh, I, this operation is only going to take an hour or two hours or, or something like that. And we can do three of those a day or four of those a day based on this. And it's based on in that incomplete data it doesn't take into account all the other things that come into procedures come into the processes then you can end up with um sort of uh, delays in your theater overrunning theater cases wasted theater time you know all these other problems come even though the data is accurate it it lacks some of the other missing crucial data in in order to make the right um whether it's managerial decisions or clinical decisions or other things like that. So we again, we also need the full picture. We need we need lots of it as well because individual, um, you know, the variability in data and in cases can um, uh, can make huge differences to how we we judge or treat things. If we're only dealing with a few cases, as there bias involved in that, which which alter the outcomes because we're only picking up some of the cases or uh, these are all potential things which the more data we've put in then the uh, and the more relevant and accurate it is then the better Andy? but that I mean that it all comes back to who is responsible for the data going in and I don't know about other people's operating theaters but it is often it is not the person who understands the power and importance and relevance of the data that is inputting the data mm. it's almost always the person on the lowest pay grade who is the person who sat in the corner of the theatre being told to input this, this, and this into the, into the computer system? Um, and and unless unless we empower people with with you know this this is why it's important that you list the people in this particular order. This is why it's important that we list you know that, that we list the procedures and we 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 do clock the accurate time that that you know that person um, is sent for for their operation so that we can capture the entire operative process. It, it isn't just a and making up numbers game. There is, there is real value and real importance to these numbers and this data. Unless we really empower people with that, it, we, we are going to continue to get our data that we're going to have to try and sort of fudge and mm. make and make decisions on. Mm. Brilliant. Is there anything, anyone, oh, Matthew, go for it. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing coming into that is actually 
giving that data back to people who with whom it is relevant to you know we we want to know how how many cases have we done in this theater how many how you know other examples might be um uh whether it's our, our caseload, our workload, or other outcomes that we can see and we can comment on, and we can, you know, the more we realize that we can see where this data is put in, and this data comes back to us, and it's and it's and its results and reports, and then fed back to us individually, personalized back to the important people individually. The more motivation it provides to doing, making sure that it's accurate in the first place, it's recorded accurately. That's probably straying into your into your question, actually, Matthew. Aren't we? We're probably, <laughs> yeah. we're probably, we're probably get, getting into well, the, the, the two are linked, aren't they? They are, yes, very much so. Well, then let's move into into that question then. So, Matthew, do you want to um, tell everyone your question and yeah, take it away? Well, it was how do you get staff to make sure that the right data is put in? That's all it was. Um, and I think there are the, the, the factors that come in um, is, first of all, down to making sure that the person who's putting it in understands what they're putting in and how it's being used. How uh, also the, you, you may have things built into your, your, your uh, information systems in terms of error checking and things like that, making sure that the right choices are there, not the irrelevant choices um but also it's it, it's having a good uh, everyone seeing the results i think of the data as well uh and seeing that that data is is used and i using the data and then auditing it and making sure that it is accurate and feeding back on that i think that is something that we all have to do i think a lot of people might be particularly on the lower grades they'd be putting data and thinking, oh, nobody nobody looks at this. I don't know why I'm doing this. So I'm just doing this to sort of tick the box because I'm meant to. And not actually realise, you know, that actually that data is really important and it does get used. And I think the more we, we feed back on that to the team, uh, I think then uh, uh, the more it improves motivation. Amazing. Andy, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is absolutely about feedback. It's about supportive feedback. It's, it, it's not using... You know, not using tools as as, uh, as as sticks to sort of beat people with and say you're inefficient for these reasons, but to support, um, you know, support change or support the, the need for that. I mean, we, we uh, the, the, the sort of cross example would be the use of the um, uh, sort of serious incident reporting systems, the you know, the data systems. The, the more you encourage people to use them by showing them that they have relevance, you know. It, you will get you will get more information into those, and people will use them in a more appropriate manner. You get people to enter enter information accurately and correctly. Um, we, we we get people to put the the correct information to 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 code patients correctly, to um to you know, to code diagnoses correctly, to enter medication correctly when they were first admitted into the hospital and everything becomes easier. It becomes, you know, it's a, it's a very supportive wing, meaning that the discharge summary that the, the doctor has to complete at the end of the patient's day is a, a an accurate document, but also is a much more straightforward document for that person to, to compile um, and is, is useful for all, for, you know, for patient, for primary care physician, for you know, the hospital team. Um, so it, 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 it's very much a feedback, but it's very much a supportive feedback as well. Thank you. Peter? 
it's very interesting because I come at from a I suppose an enforcement position than than your two roles, which are the users and the inputters of the system. So I, I've approached it. I chair the data quality group. Um, over the last two years, when I took on the position, we've moved data quality into the audit board. So we we now report to the board on a quarterly basis rather than a monthly basis on the quality of data. Um, we also, I report up onto a BI data warehousing paper through to the digital board, which then goes to exec. So there's a whole view of exec at, I suppose, trust wide of the quality of our data and the improvements we're making to it. On, on the side of the, the, I suppose, the operational teams, in, in terms of still following down from that, I suppose, enforcement, we've produced data quality dashboards that show where we would stand if CQC came in tomorrow. Where would we stand in the EDI and where would we stand in DQMI? So that the, the care groups and operational teams can see at a glance what they're going to be reported on by external bodies. And that, to me, I felt was a way of changing the culture about good quality data means higher CQC or can influence CQC. If you're sitting on the board and you've got really good high quality data, it could push you over into a good CQC rating. The other thing we've done, which is the persuasion piece, the benefits piece, is I've done a, we've done quite a lot of discussions with MSK within our um, trust on the use of SNOMED and how SNOMED is more detailed and by being more detailed and more accurate information going in gives the potential for clinicians to have AI on the data, that they could have something that would support them in the selection of um, drugs or outcomes or, or tools to use for them. And so we've gone down the route, if you input correctly now, then we can provide you with that ability to help prescribe to a patient. Plus, we're also talking about what the impact might be on the trust in terms of digital quality ratings. That, so we've a multiple approach to, to, to get, getting good data. Andy, we'll come back to you. Got your hand up. Yeah, I was just going to ask Peter. So when you're saying you're reporting on that data, on that data quality, are you, how broad or granular are the, are the metrics that you're reporting on? We've started off using the standard DQMI rating. So we just, we just, we're right. NHS England has a DQMI score, which has a national average, and we show where we exist in comparative with national averages. Where we fail, we've highlighted that. So we've got nine areas out of, I don't know, 118 where we are below national average. And that is now our focus of improving over the next six months. How can we get the care groups, the operational teams to improve those pointers? So it's a paper that talks about where we are in terms of a generic DQMI uh, marker, but it also talks about the areas where we're going to improve, because if we go after the big hitters, it will shift our percentages even higher. So that that's how we report to the audit committee. And the same information goes to the digital committee, which then goes to exec board if it's in an exception. Um, this method, when we started it a year ago, resulted because of my interest in ethnicity and getting that right and that data right because of covid we 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 pushed we not i influenced 
um, an EDI data quality program for the whole trust that is managed by the trust and reports up to the deputy C CEO. So it, 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 it works in that terms. That's really interesting. Brilliant. Matthew, have you got anything else to, to add? Yeah, I think I think it was really inter interesting points about how your data qualities, um, you know, rate rate to national standards as well. And I think that's that's really useful. One of the things we found was, um, for instance, in um, uh, fractured neck ethema data and the the anesthetist putting in blocks, we found that actually we were um, there was sort of big chunks of data missing from the anesthesia side because the um, not because the data actually hadn't been recorded, but the guy who was putting the data in for the national database didn't have access to that particular part of the system um, over at um, Heartlands and uh, Heartlands Hospital. You see, so that you end up with sort of national figures like that that can suddenly look worse and we're realizing oh hang on a sec we need to change our other system to allow us to, to put this uh, uh record our data properly and it, it, these are the sort of also challenges you can get with data is when you're merging with two systems yes. uh, two yeah. hospitals joining together that have um that have has separate systems for recording the data and then they go trying to report it all through one standard uh, uh, portal where it's in different places or recorded in slightly different ways as well. So is a, this is another area of um, of huge challenge which uh, which trusts have to deal with. Yeah, I also just wanted to say um, it is it's it's not. I didn't want it. My intent when I started it was to go after something that was really obvious and used as a base mark. It, it's not within the trust. I think there's areas where data quality doesn't get, we it's not part of the SDS submissions. Doesn't mean that it can't shouldn't be improved. And it's not like we should only focus on external point markers. It's just as as a position when I started the data quality improvement, because when you ask what needs to be improved, everybody turns around and says everything. Mm. And therefore, it was much, really easy for me to go, OK, let's download the, the, our DQMI performance. Where are we poor on that drops our percentage? Oh, look, ethnicity. Right, we'll go after that because that's really important. And that, and then we've upped it. It doesn't mean that it's the right thing to go after because there's a lot of coding in the wrong place, et cetera, which I'm sure, Matt, you're explaining exactly the same. You put two systems together and everything goes quite pear-shaped until you can rationalize the data it was just an easy model for me to go after and use to then go back around and say look this is what we can do where would you like us to go next internally so it's sort of like we start external because it's really easy and it's there and the code's there and the sql is available from nhs england to run on our data it was a good place to start but it, but I'd, I'd, i think during the podcast it's not we're not just trying to up our DQMI. We want to improve data quality. It was just a very good catalyst and enabler for us to talk about data quality and have markers to look at. Mm. What do you think, Peter, are the most important markers for data quality? How would you, how would you sort of, uh, what do you think are the really good, easy ones for organisations to use as an overall marker of their data quality? Gender, ethnicity. Um, Set, um, 
gender at birth, because if you haven't got those right, what can you do? If if I think for me, the COVID really showed the importance of having gender and ethnicity recorded correctly. Mm. But it's also if it also in some ways shows the culture. If you're not bothering to record ethnicity or gender, what does that say about the culture of your trust? Mm. So that to me is really important. If you can get those age gender pieces done, then AI, you can't run pharmaceutical tests without knowing gender, age, ethnicity. So those that set, the, the set actually defined by NHS England, I think are strong point markers. So did you find that those items, the data was simply missing or was it that they were mm. was mm. that they were wrong? No, no, they weren't wrong. Our problem was, for example, that ethnicity, gender was fine. So ethnicity was the big one. And it's because it's not stated. Now, part of that is the way that the GP systems feed into our clinical systems. And it comes across. And if it's not, and we don't go back in and ask the question. So it wasn't wasn't a um, we're ignoring the question. And it wasn't generally that we don't have the data. It was because we didn't go back into pay because the clinicians and the admin staff have got so, such a high turnover. Part of the process, they didn't go back and check ethnicity mm. and at the ethnicity. So once we identified, oh, look, all these patients are not stated or unknown, that should be corrected. Then we started to push and we are pushing that, that data quality marker higher. So how are you doing that? Are you just getting the staff to contact each individual patient mm. or are you getting that to check up on the system or are you making it, it a compulsory field when they come in? Part of it is we've we've tried to connect to the national spine, which records some of that information. And we're making the assumption because the spine is fed by the GPs and the GPs should have the original point of patient details. We're updating through that. We're also more pushing that our, our clinicians and operations check that the input is correct, that it's important to have that data in the system because of the because and we and we're using COVID as as a pointer for that. So it's it's a combination. It's be, be aware that we need to ask these patients these questions. I mean, there was a I mean this only it's quite an interesting discussion because I never thought of this until you start speaking to clinicians. If you are a woman, or sorry, if you were were a woman and are now a man, you still have to have scans because, and that's not been done because mm. on the original clinical systems and they haven't updated. So you just have what is your gender, and obviously they've changed the the records been changed correctly, so they are now mm. a. Oh, male or female. They are now male or female. Their gender at birth has been is unknown because that's that's fine. That was their choice. The problem is cancer that's related to the internal anatomy. If I'm using the right words because I'm not a clinician, the internal anatomy isn't picked up as much. So therefore, there's groups of population that are missing out on cancer checks because they're in the system within this new gender within their new gender. So that's really important that the clinical systems and it's in, uh, for example, our 2000, the data dictionary, the NHS data dictionary has that update in. But a lot of cl clinical systems, RIO and TPP, haven't made the update. And that's mm. another really important thing that needs to take place. So it's not about our data quality. 
it's about the data being given the ability to put that data quality in because it's hugely important. And I didn't, I didn't realize how important it was till you start talking to clinicians to say, mm. oh, did you know that if you if you are a woman but were born a man, then you still need the, the risk of um, male cancer is, is still there, doesn't go away. Mm. And I do hope on this podcast that I've used the right terminology and haven't offended anyone because <laughs> yes. I'm not a clinician and I tread a very, very fine line. Yeah. Again, I don't get that piece. I just provide data and try and correct it. So it's a really good point, Andy. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. That was very insightful and it was good to hear two different kind of opinions on that. Um, Peter, we've got your question. Last one of today. Do you want to give your question with a bit of context because it's short and sweet? <laughs> <laughs> Whose data is it anyway? Um, slightly um, sarcastic um, because the answer, true answer, is that it's the at the patient and therefore the root is the GP. But I made this I made this this question out of frustration with not with sharing of data between trusts and ICSs, but we are quite happy to send our data to third-party organizations to do data research on it. And that's why I find that's where the question has come from. It's a, it's a frustration that, well, third-party organizations can build data sets on all our patients in all this country nationally to provide NHS with reports and data, and it is anonymized when it comes back. But we can't put all our data together within an ICS without huge amount of IG activity, which is valid, but you get blocked. And so that was where the question came from. I believe it's the patient data as a point, but it's but it just sometimes seems the use of it seems to run out of control and that we don't have control of that data. I can give an example. I, I'll give a prime example which doesn't involve any uh, an organization. We give pharmacy slips to patients to collect their prescription. So we can see that pharmacy slip, once if, if the patient gives the chitty in, will go to the um, NHS um, services, but I can't have the data back from them because it contains patient information on my patients to know whether they've claimed the pharmacy details. And that to me seems crazy because it's my, I've sent the patient to get that prescription but I can't have that patient details back because of IG. Matthew? Yeah, I think this is a really, uh, this is one of sort of fundamental questions. You know, when you, if you ask as a clinician information, you acquire information from a patient about them. Is it, is it that clinician who now is owner of that information because he's collected it, he's acquired that knowledge? Is it the patients because they have imparted that knowledge? And is it different to if you then examine the patient and you report down your findings and you write that down, whose information is it then anyway? Because that's something you've picked up. It's not something which the, which you, which the patient was aware of at that stage until you tell them. So you get these sort of fundamental questions on who 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 is own who owns that data, who should be the guardian of it, how should it be protected? And I think this is uh, uh, and um, and this example you've given about the pharmacy slip, you know, we again we we've got to be pragmatic as well about um, how we share data 
how we use it as well. And you know, there is also a duty to share as well in one of the cold, uh, one of our um, uh, Caldecott sort of principles as well. A duty to share where it is sort of relevant and and important for patients' um, uh, healthcare. So uh, yeah, I was just going to put those uh, start with that those points in. Yeah, I mean, it is obviously it's the, it, if it's relevant to the patient, then it is the patient's data. We're we're just entrusted with it and. Um, and entrusted, meaning the patient is trusting us to to, to behave responsibly with it, to not, mm. you know, to not leave, um, you know, to not leave information on a bus, to you know, to not share it with. Um, was, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and that 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 part is very simple, as you say. That the 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 legitimate sharing that then becomes more complex because. Um, because of sort of differential IG rules and things, I, I, I think just it it feels very unnecessary complications. But it does it does force us to to re-examine why what it is we're transmitting, what it is that we are uh, that we are sharing. I, I you know I, I I find that particularly difficult um, it, it, particularly difficult thing to have because watching you, you do you do see that. People are, are relatively casual with with patient information, um, it, you know, patient information sharing with, um, you know, computer screens left on left on in in clinical areas and and, and things like that. Where there there are there is there is clinical information available. That I think uh, I think a degree of responsibility for that and a recognition of the relevance of that I, I think needs to be needs to be clear. Peter, any further thoughts? Uh, I think it was really interesting about. Just again, it's the operational versus. I suppose I I am the manufacturer of the data, or I or I process the data, and it's really interesting to see Andrew's and Matthew's views because they're using the data, and it's that it's in the operational field. But it is it's the same point: is that there needs to be some, there needs to be clear protection of that patient, and I do think it is the patient's data. As having been a patient recently for hip operation, I consider everything that I've said to my clinician mine, mm. and that he's just writing it down so he can go to someone else to improve my health. But I also think that they, once you enter the system, if we want to improve the health of this country, and that's the key focus, we need to be able to share data and not rely on third parties to provide that information to us. And it's really, to me, it's really important. So, if your hip operation data is available to a national service and in an in an anonymized form that allows the next generation to have better hip operations, that's that's clearly a good thing. Yes. Yeah. I, and to be honest, and this is like, I suppose this is my this is the view of myself rather than my trust or the NHS. By using the NHS. I don't believe my data needs to be anonymized if it's used within the NHS organization. I have huge issues personally if my data goes to a third party American organization, whether it's to provide data back to NHS England for at, at profit. But I have no problem with NHS, you looking at my data with my name on, connecting it to all my other records because I've done a lot of sports and that's where my hip injuries come to be able to track care for athletes who 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 have caused their own hip operation um, um, arthritis. So I think I think I've got no problem with it, but 
but I do have a problem with someone making profit from my data. Understandable. Any other final thoughts? No, really good discussion. Yeah, I think it's been good and it's been interesting given the different roles that you've all got, the different perspectives that you all have. So, no, I think it's been fantastic. So I just want to say a special thank you to our guests for taking part today. Um, I would love to have you all back on a future episode and uh, yeah, we'll see you all again soon. Thank you.